That song was made famous by Judy Garland in 1944, and it's just become one of those Christmas favorites. It's a Christmas classic. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, all our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. And you know, as much as we love that song, it's, it's hard sometimes at this time of the year to have a merry Christmas. Because our troubles aren't always out of sight, are they? Sometimes we see other people around us excited and they're happy, but we're not feeling it. Because the pains and the problems of life don't take a holiday, even at Christmas. In fact, over the last couple of weeks, I've personally dealt with church members and friends who've been going through some very difficult times that have made this holiday season very hard for them. I started writing down a list of just some of the things that some of our folks are dealing with. Death of a loved one. First Christmas without them. One young child gave me a prayer request two Sunday mornings ago. said, pray for our family. My mom and dad are divorcing. Another young lady said, my boyfriend broke up with me with a text. A man in our church has lost his job and he's saying, you know, I don't think we'll have a Christmas if it means buying presents. Another family is struggling financially because of a lot of health care costs, health problems for one family. One lady I'm thinking of is caring for an aging parent. Another woman is caring for a husband who is suffering the onset of dementia. One husband and wife asked me to pray for them a few Sundays ago because they have a an adult child who was addicted to drugs it was doing so well for a period of time but is now back under the influence. One lady emailed me and she said, just pray for me. I'm a single mom. I'm trying to do the work of a mom and a dad. I'm working two jobs. And I feel like I'm not giving my child the time she needs, but I don't know what else to do. And then, of course, we all struggle with our own list. And I'm not trying to depress you this morning. You're thinking, wow, great, thanks a lot, boy. But that's reality. That's the real world. And often we come in on Sunday mornings and we look great and we smile and we answer the question, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. But typically behind every heart, there's at least one hurt. And it can be hard to have yourself a merry little Christmas when things are going on like that. When you're suffering the pains and the problems of this life. And often, whenever we start feeling that way and we start feeling down, it causes us, under certain circumstances, to question our faith. We start questioning whether or not prayer even works anymore. Why pray? doesn't seem like God's hearing my prayers. Why read the Bible? It's just hard to understand. Why go to church? I might as well just stay in bed this morning. And we start questioning whether our faith is really paying off because it doesn't look like it when we look at the pains and the problems of life. Now, I've got good news for you. If that's how you feel this morning, God, through his word, gives instruction and encouragement that I truly believe will help you this holiday season. And maybe you are not there. Maybe you're not feeling these pains and problems and you're thinking, dude, this is depressing. This is Christmas season. You ought to be cheering us up. I'm going to encourage you to be patient and maybe take some notes today because it's not a matter of if you will go through some pain or some problems in your life. It's just a matter of when. 
And maybe God will bring this message back to your memory because you're going to need this as well. You see, we're not the first followers of Jesus to go through problems and pain. Every Christian for every generation has done it, but especially those first century Christians where it was not politically popular or expedient to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, if you were a Jew and you received Jesus as your Lord and your Savior and you believed He was the Messiah of Israel, you would often be rejected by your family and friends and persecuted by your fellow countrymen. And not only that, you would also at times find yourself facing the opposition or even outright hostility of the Roman Empire. Many of those first followers of Jesus lost everything to follow Jesus. Many of those first followers of Jesus were persecuted and haunted and hunted because of their faith in Christ. And there came a time for some of them, they began to question whether their faith was worth it. They began to question, maybe we need to go back to Judaism. Maybe we need to give up on Christ and Christianity and Jesus and prayer and the Bible and the church. And maybe we need to just go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, the ceremonies and the the legal system, go back to the temple sacrifices. And maybe things would be easier for us if we just went back to the way things used to be. And as a result of that, a fellow Christian, a fellow struggler, we don't know exactly who he was, wrote a letter to encourage these Jewish Christians who by this point had been persecuted so much they had run for their lives. They had been scattered all throughout the Roman Empire. They're often called the diaspora, which means the the scattering, like seed scattered on the wind. These Christians had been scattered all over the Roman Empire because they had been run out of their homes, run out of their communities, run out of their businesses, run out of their cities. And so a letter was circulated to those Little groups of Christians all over the Roman Empire. We still have a copy of that letter. And the instructions and the encouragement given to those first century believers is still applicable and powerful for us today in the 21st century. We call this letter the letter to the Hebrew Christians or the book of Hebrews. I'm going to encourage you to open your Bible or uh, turn on your Bible to Hebrews chapter 4. And we're just going to look at three verses today. Chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16, as we listen to how this writer of this letter encouraged and instructed these persecuted believers. And I believe this is a message for you today as well. Let's read it together. You read silently from your copy of God's Word as I read out loud for mine. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that as we think about what you have said through your word in these three verses, that you would speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
the writer of Hebrews tells these persecuted believers to do two things. He literally commands them to do two things. He commands them to hold fast. And he commands them, draw near. Notice, first of all, his command to hold fast. Literally, when he says hold fast, he's saying you need to strongly adhere to something. You need to cling to something. I can't help but to always read that verse and think of the song of Elvis Presley, Stuck Like Glue. You know, and I think maybe that's what he's saying. You know, you got to stick like glue. And what is he saying? We, we adhere to strongly. We, we glue ourselves to. We, we lash ourselves to. We, we are holding fast to our confession, our profession of faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He said, hold on to that. I know the pain of this life and the problems of this life have conspired to tempt you to give up, but don't give up. Instead, you hold fast. Now, being a Jew writing to Jewish Christians, the writer of this letter is contrasting all throughout this letter the superiority of Jesus compared to the Old Testament system of law and ceremony and sacrifice. And he says, the Old Testament, all of that, those were the shadows. Those were the symbols. But Jesus is the real thing. Hold fast to him. And one of the things that the writer of this letter does is he contrasts the Jewish high priest and his ministry with Jesus as our spiritual high priest and his ministry. That's why he says there in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, an Old Testament Jewish high priest would go into the inner room, that holiest of holy places in the temple, only on one day a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And he had to go in there only on one day a year in a highly prescribed manner in order to offer the blood of a sacrificial lamb on the mercy seat that represented the presence and the holiness and the righteousness and the judgment of God. In fact, he could only go in there after having first made a sacrifice for his own sins because he was a flawed human being. But as a priest, he would go in both representing God to the people and representing the people to God. And he would only go once a year, and he would only go into that inner room called the Holy of Holies for just long enough to offer the blood on that mercy seat and then to go back out. In fact, bells would be sewn into the hem of his garment so that people on the outside could hear if he's still alive or if God has struck him dead because of his holiness and God's righteousness. And if they stopped hearing the bells, there was also a rope tied around his waist so they could pull him out of the Holy of Holies. Now going in, he would first enter that outer courtyard of the temple. He would then go into a secondary room called the holy place. And then he would go beyond a veil that stretched from the ceiling to the floor. A thick, massive, beautifully multicolored veil. And only he could go on the other side of that veil into the holy of holies. 
That's the high priest of Judaism. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, since we have a great high priest, who is our high priest? Jesus, the Son of God. He is Jesus, which reminds us of his humanity. That that babe born in Bethlehem was none other than God in flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus in his humanity, but also the Son of God. That speaks of his deity. That he was none other than God in flesh. Perfectly God, perfectly man, the God-man. And because he was the God-man... He is the great high priest who can both represent God to the people and the people to God. How do we know what God's like? How do we know how God feels? How do we know how God loves? We know it because Jesus became one of us. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, talking about before time began, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John says in verse 14, And the Word that existed eternally became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. We saw his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to represent God to the people, but he also came to represent the people to God. You and me to God by living a perfect life where we have lived sinful lives, by not offering the blood of a sacrificial lamb, but by offering his own blood on the cross of Calvary as the lamb of God that takes away, not just covers, takes away the sin of the world. And the writer of Hebrews says, hold fast to your confession of faith in him because he represents you up there You've got a great high priest seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he represents you up there with his own sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. And we know that 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, that he physically ascended back to the right hand of God the Father. He didn't have to pass through the outer court of the temple, and then the holy place, and into the holy of holies of that earthly temple. No, he passed through that first heaven, our atmosphere. He passed through the second heaven, space. He went into the third heaven, according to the book of 2 Corinthians, the very presence of God. And he went to that throne room of God, having offered his blood, and he did what no other priest had ever done, He sat down at the right hand of God the Father. There was no chair in the Holy of Holies of the earthly temple for the high priest to sit down because his work was never done. Year after year, he would have to go on the Day of Atonement and go through that whole ritual. But our great high priest sat down. His work is once and for all. He represents you. And whenever you start feeling down and discouraged and you start wondering if all of this is worth it, you remember, go back to what? Go back to a religious way of life, thinking if you do good enough, you can make your way to heaven, earn your way to heaven. Go what? Go back to religion. Religion hurts people and uses people and lets people down. 
religion often gets between God and people. What are you going to go back to? No, you hold fast that Jesus Christ is my Lord and he is my Savior. And he has died, been buried, resurrected, and has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And nothing on earth can change that in heaven. Not only does he represent you, hold fast, because Jesus also understands you. Look at verse 15. Jesus understands you. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Not only does he represent you up there, he understands what you're going through down here. And the reason he understands, the reason he's able to sympathize, the reason he's able to enter into and share what you are experiencing is because he became one of us. Christmas is nothing less than the celebration of God becoming man, of the Son of God becoming the Son of Man, and relating to us and sharing life with us, not putting on an act, not wearing a mask, but truly God becoming man. He was born of a virgin. God contracted himself to the span of that virgin Mary's womb to be born like every other human being has been born. And he grew. He had a real human body with a real human mind, with real human emotions. He was still God in flesh, yes, but he laid his prerogatives of deity at the feet of the Father and he lived every moment as the Son of Man. And he grew. The Bible says he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. I wonder if Mary did like my wife does for our kids when they were growing up. She would put them against the wall and mark how tall they're getting. That board still hangs in our kitchen so that we can see how tall our children have become. The Bible says Jesus grew in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and people. So he grew. He grew physically and he grew intellectually and he grew spiritually and he grew emotionally. And he experienced everything that we experience. And because of that, he is able to sympathize with us. He knows what it's like to feel what you feel because he has become one of us. I don't know if you can see it in the dark here. There's a piano, a little baby grand piano. I don't play the piano. I envy people who can play the piano. I envy people who can play the organ. It's right over there. That looks like a jet aircraft carrier's, you know, <laughs> cockpit with all the buttons. But did you know there's a truth about sound that you could have two pianos side by side or even in the same room at a distance, and with your hand you can hit one chord on one piano and that sound of the same chord will vibrate on the other piano no human hand having touched that other piano 
but it's called sympathetic resonance. Sympathetic resonance. Hit the chord on one piano, and the same chord on the other piano vibrates in unison. There is not a note of human experience or suffering felt by you down here that does not resonate in the heart and mind and soul of Jesus up there. He feels what you feel. He understands what you're going through. He sympathizes and shares with you in what you're going through. Maybe not in the specific details of what you're experiencing, but if you ever felt lonely, Jesus knows what it's like to feel lonely. Have you ever been hungry? Have you ever been tired? He knows what it's like to be hungry and tired. Have you ever been betrayed by someone that you gave your heart to and they turned around and stabbed you in the back? He knows what it's like to be betrayed. Jesus can sympathize with you and that's why you hold fast. You not only have a Savior who represents you up there, He understands what you're going through down here and nobody else may know it. Nobody else may understand it. Nobody else may feel it, but you've got a Savior who does. That's why we hold fast, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he never sinned. And maybe you say, wait a minute, pastor. If Jesus faced temptation and yet he never sinned, he never did anything wrong, he never responded wrongly, then how can he understand me because I am prone to sin? He can't relate to me if he's perfect. I disagree. Every temptation you face, he faced the same types of temptation. Not faking it, but in reality. And just because he was successful, absolutely sinlessly successful over every temptation, doesn't mean he can't sympathize with you. Take two men. Put them at the hands of the same tormentors and torturers. The first man is tortured. And within an hour of the torture beginning, he gives up everything he knows. He betrays everything he believes. He caves in and says, please don't torture me anymore. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll tell you what you want me to tell you. The second man endures the identical torture, but he never gives in. Never betrays all that he believes. In fact, he goes to the point of even dying. You tell me which man knows more about torture. The one who gave up or the one who endured it all and never gave up. I'm going to tell you something. I have given up too often on myself and what I believe. And I've given up on God. But, and I have sinned. And I know that you know what I'm talking about. Not because... You know me. You know what I'm talking about because you know you. We've all been tempted and we've all fallen and we've all failed. But Jesus faced those same kinds of temptations and he succeeded even to the point of dying for us on the cross. And I tell you, in heaven right now, he knows more about sin and temptation than you and I ever will. And he can sympathize when we're facing it. He can relate when we're feeling it. And he can help us whenever we can't find help anywhere else. So the writer of Hebrews tells us, 
hold fast to your confession. In Jesus Christ, your son, the son of God, your savior. Just this week, I did a funeral for one of our church members who died suddenly of a massive heart attack, left behind a beautiful wife and a 21-year-old daughter. Just graduated from the University of Florida, just got her first job, was doing so well, and he was so proud of her. And it was heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching to be with that family in those difficult days and to conduct that funeral service. A lot of tears, a lot of questions. God, why? But at the visitation, when the family started receiving their friends, I was standing next to the 21-year-old daughter, and her eyes just lit up as she saw a friend of hers from college walk in the door. And they embraced and they cried. And then that 21-year-old said to her friend, I don't know how I would get through this if it was not for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I thought, there's the secret. That even when you feel like giving up, even when you don't understand why bad things happen, even when you can't make sense of the pain, you hold fast to your confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Hold fast. Second bit of instruction and encouragement he gives Not only do you hold fast, you draw near. You'll see that in the final verse, verse 16. Draw near. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Drawing near, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, means to come to God in prayer and in worship. That you approach God in prayer and in worship. The writer of Hebrews is instructing these persecuted and scattered Christians to do the opposite of what their flesh often tells them to do when they're facing pain and problems. Your flesh will often say, draw away. Give up on God. Give up on prayer. Give up on worship. Give up on reading the Bible. Give up on being a part of the body of Christ. Just give up. But the writer of Hebrews says, no, no, no. no. Don't draw away. Don't draw back. You draw near to God. Sometimes people come to our church and they say, I didn't want to be here this morning. I'm just not in a good mood. And I say, this is when you need to be here the most. Is when you don't want to be here. When everything in your body and everything in your circumstances is saying, draw away. God says, draw near. Listen, let us then with confidence draw near. And where do we draw near? To the throne of grace. Aren't you grateful for grace? You're not drawing near to a throne of judgment or a throne of condemnation. No, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No, you're drawing near to the throne of grace. God's unmerited love poured out on you just because that's how God is. He loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. He loves you with a perfect, undying love. And when you approach that throne of grace, your advocate, the Lord Jesus, your great high priest, says, Father, they're drawing near. 
because I became one of them. I lived their life. I died their death and paid the price for his sin. Let him draw near. He's weak. He's frail. He doesn't have it all figured out. He's hurting. He's confused. But he draws near because he knows this is the very source of your grace that you gave me on the cross. And how do we draw near? He says, let us then with confidence. How do we draw near? We draw near with confidence. I know Tom O'Reilly will like this because of his uh, college degree. He's taking some Greek and some Bible history. That word for confidence that is translated confidence in English is a Greek word that means a conversation face-to-face between two citizens. It was a Greek word, came from Greek culture, then adopted by the Romans as the Greek language became the universal language of the known world. And the word was not a spiritual word at all. It was not a Bible word. It wasn't a, a spiritual word. It just meant a conversation between two citizens, two Greek citizens, or in this case, two Roman citizens, that we can stand face-to-face and just have an open conversation with each other. That there is a unity between us and a freedom between us. Well, the writer of Hebrews, whoever this was, could have been the Apostle Paul or someone else. The writer of Hebrews takes that word and baptizes it, makes something spiritual out of it. He says, let us therefore come to the throne of grace with confidence. Just like two Roman citizens stand on a street corner with nothing between them. And they can have an open, face-to-face conversation You get to go to the very presence of God and stand at the throne room of God and have a conversation with God, not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Don't be bashful. Don't be timid. Don't hold back. You're coming into the very throne room not only of God, but of your heavenly Father and your Savior, the Lord Jesus. Come. The Spirit of God says, come. God is far more often to hear our prayers than we are to offer them. And whenever you say, I'm so ashamed of what I've done and what I've been, and I'm ashamed my faith isn't strong enough or I wouldn't be feeling this way. No, 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 no. That's a lie from the devil. You come as you are before a holy God as he is. And you come with confidence. Come boldly. And where do we draw near? When do we draw near? We draw near to the throne of grace. How? With confidence. And when? In time of need. This doesn't mean that the only time we pray is when we're in trouble. But it does say, are you facing a need? Draw near. Draw near in time of need. This morning, I I just thought about that hymn that we sometimes sing. What a friend we have in Jesus. You remember the words of that song? What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? If we have, don't be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace in time of need. And what do we receive when we draw near? Do we receive condemnation? You ought to be better Christian than that. 
You ought not to feel this way. You shouldn't have failed in that temptation. You should have been a better this or a better that. Is that what we find? No. Instead, we find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Aren't you grateful for grace? But aren't you also grateful for mercy? Someone has said grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. It's a gift, undeserved. He gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy is when God doesn't give you what you do deserve. You know, I deserve to be banished. I deserve to be punished. But no, God instead gives me mercy. It is his loving kindness. It is his forgiveness. It is his acceptance. And he gives me grace. He gives me an outpouring of his love, not because I deserve it, but because of who he is. And when I'm hurting and I'm discouraged and I need help, I don't need as many lectures as I need mercy and grace from God. And I'll never be found wanting if I just come to him. And neither will you. Because Jesus can help. In fact, here's my bottom line today. Because Jesus became one of us, he can help each one of us. I think sometimes we forget that. That Jesus is not just there to save your soul. He's there to sustain you throughout your life. And he wants to be a part of everything you experience, good and bad. I was reading a testimony of someone who came to faith in Jesus out of Buddhism. Been a Buddhist most of his life. Had some Christian friends who witnessed to him, but he just thought Jesus was a good teacher. Didn't need Jesus. He was devoted to Buddha. One occasion, this man visits the, the... temple of 10,000 Buddhas. And as he's in this temple, on this pilgrimage, he accidentally knocks over one of the statues of Buddha. And he's mortified. So he gets down and he, and he starts picking up Buddha. And then he realizes, I don't need a God who needs me to help pick him up when he's down. I need a God who can pick me up when I'm down. And he started looking into the claims of Christ and became a Christian because he says Christianity, Jesus, is not about you picking up God when he's down. It's about God picking you up when you're down by his grace and by his mercy. And because Jesus became one of us that first Christmas, he can help each one of us when we're down. I think sometimes you church members in America today think pastors... If they just opened up their dress shirts and pulled it back, church members would see a big S for Superman. You know, the pastor can be everywhere, know everything, solve every theological riddle, answer every counseling question, perform every baptism, every wedding, every funeral, be at every person's beck and call, know everyone's name. And if he doesn't, we'll find another church. And for many years, I struggled with trying to be everything to everyone. Because I thought that's what a pastor was supposed to do. I've come to realize I'm not Superman. But I know one who is. And my job is to not try to take his place. My job is to point you to him. And when you're hurting, I'll do everything I can. But the best thing I can do for you is to say, hold on, draw near, and he will give you mercy and grace in your time of need. 
And you'll find in him all the help you need. Because he became one of us. He can help each one of us. I can't, but he can. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, we thank you for your word. We thank you for reminding us today that even in the pain and the problems of life that never take a holiday, neither does Jesus. He is our great high priest. Because of that, we can hold fast knowing he represents us up there. He understands everything we're going through down here. And we can draw near in prayer and worship even when our hearts are bleeding. Knowing that we're coming to our God at his throne of grace. In our time of need. And we can do so with confidence because of Jesus. And we will find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Help us to draw near to you through prayer, through Bible reading, through worship, through singing our praises to you, through just being still and being in your presence. Let us draw near. And we thank you and praise you that Jesus, our Savior, made it possible. God, there could be someone in this room today who's never received Jesus as their Savior. I pray that right now they would realize that Jesus offers them the free gift of eternal life. They'll simply confess their sin to him, believe in him, put their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sin based on his death, burial, and resurrection. And as they become a follower of Jesus, they can always know that because he became one of us, he can help each one of us no matter what we're going through. We'll praise you for that in Jesus' name.